This expert insights session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 31st of March, 2021. The topic was the trauma of emergency service workers, recognition, management, and support services. On the panel, we had Peter, ex-firefighter and lived experience representative. Professor Samuel Harvey, Deputy Director at the Black Dog Institute. Alexandra Howard, Director of Disaster and Public Health Emergencies at Phoenix, Australia. And chairing the session is Dr. Carol Newell. We might just get started. So welcome everyone to tonight's podcast. It is the trauma of emergency service workers, recognition, management and support services. So we're really excited about tonight's talk. But before we get started, I just want to give my acknowledgement to country. Um, the Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, as Australia's first people and our traditional custodians. We value their cultures, identities, continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community. I want to pay my respects to elders, both past, present and to the future, um, and for making a positive contribution to mental health and the well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. All right, so let's get started with our amazing panellists tonight. Um, we have got Peter, our ex-firefighter and lift experience representative, is giving us a wave. Professor Sam Harvey, Deputy Director of the Black Dog Institute, and Alex Howard, um, the Director of Disaster and Public Health uh, Emergencies, Phoenix, Australia. So welcome, everyone. Um, I do love this, this um, slide, but actually what we get our panel members to do is we take off the slide and we actually do a little bit of a round table. Love for you guys to actually introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your experience um, with emergency workers. Um, and, and, you know, just to, to let us know a little bit about your background. How about we start with Peter? Righto. Um, so I'm ex-firefighter, still involved, but uh, my days on a fire truck are done. So I've spent 15 years within the country fire authority um, and I broke down with post-traumatic stress five years ago now. Um, so, and on top of that, obviously having a lot of mates within the, within the CFA, MFB, FRV system and FFM these days as well. I've, um, I've seen a lot of people go through what I've been through and worse, unfortunately. Um, and it's probably something that um, is quite close to heart because I've been very close to sort of not being here anymore at some stages due to what I'm battling. So um, having the chance to sort of put a, put a real face and not just an academic face to um, the mental health side of emergency service workers is probably something that why I'm here tonight. It, um, certainly helps helps me as well. I actually find it quite cathartic to actually do this sort of thing. So, yeah, but that's a, in a nutshell. I'm sure we'll expand on it later. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Peter, for being here tonight. And, and yes, your experience in working in emergency and the challenges with mental health is going to be so important here tonight. We might now turn to Alex, Alex Howard. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, uh, thank you for having me and thanks to everyone for joining us this evening. So uh, as Carol said, I uh, 
work at Phoenix Australia Centre for Post-Traumatic Mental Health and we're a non-for-profit affiliated with the University of Melbourne and our mission there is around understanding trauma and renewing lives. In terms of my uh, background, I trained as a clinical psychologist and possibly went through that training with Carol <laughs> um, and um, since that time have worked with kind of a range of people who've been impacted by trauma, including emergency service workers um, and defence and veterans, things like that. And then I now predominantly do work more in kind of the policy space. So um, things like uh, kind of leading the bushfire response in supporting emergency service workers, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into more later. Fantastic. Thanks, Alex, for being here tonight. And now we've got Professor Sam Harvey, the well, not so cool one. <laughs> I so I, I, um, I was a GP in London for a number of years and then retrained in psychiatry. Um, while I was in London, I was a psychiatrist for the London Ambulance Service. I've been based in Sydney since 2012 and over those nine years have set up at the Black Dog Institute a program of research around the mental health of first responders. So we've been doing a lot of research with first responders here in New South Wales around um, how to protect them against mental health problems, what sort of training their managers should have, and then also looking at treatment programs for emergency service who service workers who develop PTSD. I, I still do clinical work. I see patients once a week in the clinic at the Black Dog Institute. And um, recently we have established the Bushfire Support Service, which is a, a national service for emergency service workers suffering from PTSD, depression or anxiety. And so running that service together with Richard Bryant. Fantastic. Thank you, Sam. It sounds like you've got a really, your plate is very full. So thank you for making the time tonight. Oh, my pleasure. So we might actually start with Peter. Um, Peter, I'd love to hear a little bit about your history and the challenges you faced with mental health as an emergency worker. So you've got quite a bit of a story um, there story yeah, horror story some days I think um so I joined look from a CFA point of view I joined when I was 16 um so I I had a big gap in the middle so I'm I roll over on the wrong side of 40 these days um in a couple of months time so um I had a big gap in the middle but I joined at 16 um I attended my first fatal car accident at 16 as well so and back then I would say the emergency service world wasn't um, it wasn't as equipped as what it is now, especially in regards to mental health and what the real traumas of that sort of what that we deal with on a day to day basis um, as we are now. Um, a lot of the stuff I saw when I was between the ages of sort of 16 and 20, 21 were pretty high speed car crashes and a lot of stuff like that. Um, and then. I had a big break. I moved with other work. Um, I moved to regional Victoria after living in metropolitan Melbourne for quite a while. Um, and I rejoined CFA oh, about 12 months after Black Saturday. Um, and yeah, so then again, it's it's not just the fires, I think now, not, uh, you know, 
from a firefighter's point of view, and it doesn't matter whether it's Fire and Rescue New South Wales, Queensland Fire Service, doesn't matter where we are in, in Australia or the world for that matter. Um, firefighters do more than just put the wet stuff on the hot stuff now. Um, we do car accidents. We have a huge range of technical rescue and um, mechan mechanical entrapment uh, responses that we do. And I think it's it adds to this, the weight of expectations and pressures that come with that. Um, and the reality is that generally when we're in a big red truck, we're, come, we're going to someone on their worst day. Um, it's so yeah it it piles up and you know we all see stuff and we're very good at turning the emotion off from an emergency service point of view we are all very very good at doing that because it becomes if we let emotion get in the way then we become we become not useless but we become a little bit um too attached to a, a scene um so then we but the biggest issue we have is then when we come back and the gear goes off is then actually processing what we've seen and understanding what is, and I don't like the term normal, but what is a normal response to seeing, um, seeing those sorts of things. It's, it's tricky um, because everyone's response to traumatic incidences are different. Um, emergency service workers, we're the helpers at the end of the day. Um, we don't like admitting that we need help. Um, and it's a really hard, it's a hard, hard nut to crack. Well, I was actually going to fire this question at Sam here, right? You say, you know what, Peter, what you're saying is, you know, there's this perception of you guys as superheroes, but you're actually not, you know, you're normal human beings with emotions and, and you know, dealing with quite a bit of uh, distressing events. So, Sam, can you tell us anything about this particular cohort, you know, emergency workers in the context of mental health? Like, are the prevalence rates different in terms of like rates of mental health difficulties? What's unique about this particular cohort that practitioners and health providers need to think about? Yeah, so look, a couple of things. I, I think, you know, by and large, emergency service workers and people who volunteer in the emergency services are a really resilient bunch. Um, and, and you know, they all have an awful lot of personal resources to, to call upon when needed. Um, that said, if, if you look, there's there's been countless surveys of emergency service workers done and, and they all consistently find that about one in 10 of the currently active emergency service workers have symptoms that look like PTSD. If you look amongst volunteer workers it's slightly less but that's sort of hard because um you know as i'm sure peter will attest to uh, you know it's a very broad spectrum of some volunteers that are seeing an awful lot of trauma and, and some that are not so i think those that are you know stationed near major highways where they are seeing a lot of trauma the evidence is it's about the same as what you see in those other things about one in ten with similar numbers having depression and anxiety and I think one of the problems with emergency service workers is that we can sometimes become too focused on PTSD as the only outcome that people can have after being exposed to cumulative trauma it's it's, it's one of a number of things and certainly we see a lot of emergency service workers who have problems with depression or anxiety 
and that if that's not managed properly, then their risk of subsequently going on to develop PTSD really increases. So that's the overall picture. Um, interestingly, you know, when, when Peter was telling his story, he sort of, he, he didn't speak about one event, he spoke about that cumulative exposure events. And that's what the data overwhelmingly shows that, of course, for some emergency workers, there's a single incidence that's the focus of their symptoms, but the more common picture is it's a cumulative exposure over many years. And so what you start to see is when you begin to find emergency service workers who have been exposed repeatedly to really traumatic incidents, the prevalence of things like PTSD gets much higher than one in 10. All right. So, so it sounds like it kind of sneaks up over time. Is that right, Peter, that it's cumulative? Or is, it, is, it, is there warning signs that emergency workers typically just start to ignore What's happening there where we can intervene? Look, I think I talk about the little things that, and especially from an emergency service workers' point of view, um, we're a pretty tight-knit bunch. Um, whether it's fire, fire brigade, shifts, whatever, we're a pretty close-knit family and we, you know, it's almost a second family. My wife claimed numerous times that I should just move into the fire station some days because I spent more time there than at home. Um but you always have, and I use I use the example of the practical joker, the guy guy or person who is the one who's always having a bit of fun and having a bit of a joke or whatever else. And all of a sudden, you will do do that incident that becomes um it, 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 it's a, it, yeah it's a, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. It's the drop of water that overfills us. Um, uh, that overflows the stress bucket or whatever else. Um, now we all go through, you go and do a traumatic incident and you will relive it for a couple of weeks. That's, you know, and most psychologists and psychiatrists will tell you that's a pretty standard response because that's just the body's way of processing it. But the, once they start going, you know, once you get past two weeks, you sort of like, oh, you know, and that's just the basic warning sign. Um, the guy who all of a sudden is sleeping, so not sleeping at all, and he's constantly cranky all of a sudden. It's those little things. Um, and the thing is, us emergency service workers are very good at just fobbing it off as just having a bad day or, you know, something at home is bothering us or whatever else. So um, we become very good very quickly at wearing a mask. Um, and that's how I did it. So, and I just busied myself to the point where I just, didn't have to I didn't have to deal with my own head yeah so, so with, this, with this cumulative effect right that Sam's talked about it's not just one one thing necessarily it's just over time and it builds and it builds um it sounds like it doesn't matter what type of event it was I, I it, think, does the type yeah. matter? define trauma that's my probably right. my, big, that's right. my first core my first and foremost thing and Sam please feel free to Stepping on up. And Alex as well. Yeah. And Alex, Alex as well, please. Conversation. We um, might go to Alex first, actually. What are your thoughts about the type of trauma? What you know, it, slow moving trauma, like something like coronavirus versus something really fast moving like the bushfires and the recent floods we have. Does it matter the type of trauma? I mean, I'm going to give a reasonably standard response and say it really varies from person to person how they're impacted. We do see that there are 
general trends in terms of the kinds of trauma experiences that people are more impacted by? So uh, interpersonal types is, is one of kind of the examples often uh, given, but it's, you know, it's not as simple as, well, you know, there's a kind of a dose response relationship. Well, the more trauma you get, uh, the more impacted you're going to be, or if it's this type, um, then this is the response you're going to get. You know, as, as Peter's uh, story reflects, it is um, more complicated uh, than that. And um, I think the other part is, and this is, one thing when I do um, training with a lot of not so much mental health professionals, but uh, other people working, supporting people who've been impacted by trauma, I, going to Peter's point, try not to um, uh, go too much on, well, this is the technical definition of what a potentially traumatic event is. I just think, you know, what's more important is you know, when it comes to giving an official diagnosis of PTSD, sure, but, you know, for most of the support that people required, it's, I find really focusing on what is it that they've come to you with, what are the impacts they're reporting, um, you know, rather than getting into a great debate about, you know, the specific the label. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that, you know, works differently for different people, but yeah, and it depends on your role and what, what you need to get from that conversation with the person. Yeah, Carol, I think, look, it's a good point that, that Alex makes. And I think, there, you know, there is a whole literature out there about what type of traumatic events are more or less likely to cause PTSD and, you know, interpersonal violence more common than natural disasters etc cetera, etc cetera. there is some stuff with emergency services around that i think one of the really interesting ones is the issue of control um and and peter may be able to speak to this but you know i think emergency service workers are trained to hand to, to deal with situations and when they're found in situations where they feel they have inadequate equipment or inadequate training or, or inadequate resources or control to deal with the situation. I think that's particularly distressing for emergency service workers. Having said that, from a practitioner point of view, the reality is if you're seeing an emergency service worker, almost certainly they have had adequate exposure to trauma for you to be inquiring about PTSD. So I, I think it's not necessarily helpful to say, you know, tell us about the worst thing that you've seen when you're, you know, a GP or some other health provider, primary care health provider, what you want to do is to be saying, okay, like this person has seen enough trauma at what are their level of symptoms at the moment? Um, it, because I think sometimes, and again, Peter, correct me if I'm wrong, particularly with emergency service workers who've been exposed to cumulative stuff, there can almost be a sense of, well, I haven't seen anything that everyone else on my truck hasn't seen. So I don't want to complain about what I've seen, but then again, I have got these symptoms. So sometimes it's easier to ask about the impact rather than the events. Yeah, and look, at the end of the day, it, and I come back to my point of define trauma um, because what I find traumatic, and I use the example of, um, I use the example of a house fire because that's, a, that's quite a common one for firefighters. I'm quite comfortable and still am to this day to suit up, run three lengths of hose into a into a burning building and never have a problem um, because that's not traumatic to me. I have the training. I have the knowledge. I understand what I'm staring at. But for the person, you know, the person standing on the sidewalk watching that happen, they're going, 
this is the scariest thing I've ever seen. Are those guys going to come out? What you know? There's so many things that can come on to um, to that. So everyone's definition of trauma is different, and I think, as you rightly say, Sam, it's we've all seen it. Um, it's a matter of um, you know what impact is that now having on on your personal life? That you know it become moves down to the individual, not the team, which is very hard for a, an emergency service worker to do because we play a team game. So Yeah, absolutely. Can- but it really speaks to Sam's point as well because, you know, your example, Peter, is that there's a really strong sense of control for you being able to run to the house because you're kind of trained and equipped to do it, but the person standing on the side doesn't feel that control. Sam, you were going to say something. Sorry to interrupt. That's okay. I just noticed on the Q&A there's a question directed to Peter around sort of what his family and friends might have noticed. Um, so I will cover that if that's all right, Carol. Yeah, I'll yeah, cover yeah. that one. So I suppose um, probably about 12, 18 months before I broke down, we had, uh, my wife and I probably had a discussion about whether I was going down that road um, and that post-traumatic stress might be some sort of a discussion. Um, and then, look, there's probably you know other medical issues popped up that, didn't make much sense but we ended up investigating those um they came back all clear and then everything sort of went away again so it's became one of those life got in the way and we didn't really um explore all the options that were possible um at the time um you know would i have you know if i had been picked up any earlier would it have changed much i don't know um but yeah, look, my wife was concerned for a while because it would be nights that I would sit bolt up out in bed and I'd have no idea what I'd been on about, but my wife knew fully what I was on about. So, yes, there were concerns, but it's um, part of that literature and what everyone, what I speak to now is giving the the observers, so friends and family and everyone else, the empowerment to understand what's happening in front of them so that they can try and best engage that conversation to get them the help that they need yeah now you know you peter you mentioned that we sort of think of the emergency workers as superheroes i have this question whether emergency workers themselves think of themselves as heroes because that's one of the questions from the audience right could that be a barrier Uh, i'm look it may be for a minority i wouldn't have thought you know the vast majority of um emergency service workers that i know and i'm good friends with it's a job um it's no different to the baker the person who stacks shelves in the supermarket whatever um we will joke about from time to time the fact that we can pull off some pretty ridiculous stunts when the adrenaline's going at flat knacker because yeah we once you when you've done it and you've got the adrenaline flowing you realize that yeah you can pull off some pretty superhuman efforts um but yeah i'm not sure that um i'm not sure that we view it as that um we may run with the adage a little bit to get the support we need but i'm not sure that i think the vast majority of emergency service workers think we are Uh, i'm happy to be corrected on that one by the way so (laughs) (laughs) it's just a question from the audience as well so i thought we we pivot back to that now i'm going to do a little bit of a pivot now to um trauma-informed practice because it's you know on on the agenda here to discuss (laughs) alex what does it mean um to be a trauma-informed practitioner when working with emergency personnel because i think this is really important yeah i mean i think essentially 
I mean, probably most people who are listening have heard the term trauma-informed, trauma-informed care, and there is a long history that's come out of more drug and alcohol uh, spaces and things like that. But in terms of, you know, for now, for this situation, what am I thinking of when we think of being a trauma-informed practitioner? It's really recognising that um, a majority of the people that you are working with are trauma impacted and this, you know, we could tip up to 100% probably if you're working with an emergency service worker and really thinking about all aspects of your engagement with them uh, from your very first interaction to, um, you know, when you have kind of finished your sessions with them through the lens of being trauma-informed. So thinking about how can we uh, enhance someone's sense of safety or enhance their sense of control. And I think it was Sam, well, I think everyone's mentioned this importance of um, a sense of control that is not there in a lot of traumatic situations. So it's really about creating an environment that allows for trauma recovery. So it's not, I think a really important point is it's not about in and of itself is not a treatment, but it's about, well, how can I, as a psychologist, how can I, as a GP, as an allied health worker, as a peer to an emergency service worker, um, create an environment and set up interactions in a way that acknowledge someone's trauma history? Mm -hmm. And that can really, I mean, it's the aim to increase more engagement with health providers and yeah. yeah to stay and 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 get the help that's needed yeah i mean i think that's probably that's one of the the benefits that we would hope come from it this definitely is in the um the category of tra- of evidence informed mm-hmm. uh, which i think is really important to say but it is something that is well received um by uh, people who use services to be trauma informed so another hope behind trauma-informed care is, you know, it's drawing on people's strengths. And I think Sam made the brilliant point before that, you know, uh, this cohort in particular have, you know, they're typically very resilient. They have a lot of strengths and things that they can are coming with already um, that can help them address whatever issues they're coming to you with. So I think, you know, coming from that strengths-based approach is, is really important as well. And also the idea is that, um, not only if you're trauma-informed, are you supporting someone's recovery in whichever way is appropriate to your role, but it is also a bit protective for you yourself in terms of um, kind of being a, there being a real focus on self-care and your own psychological safety and other aspects like that. Yeah. So say as a practitioner or a service, an organisation, how can we be more trauma-informed? What are some of the trauma-informed practices we can put in place? You know, you mentioned a few when we were chatting before that it's just so practical. Yeah, I think, yeah, it can be kind of as simple or as complicated as you want it to be, trauma-informed care, and it's really about applying principles to your current role, not about changing your role or anything like that. So I think, you know, a really practical example that we work uh, with people um, in bushfire impacted communities is, you know, being conscious of what news they're showing in the background in the waiting room, uh, you know, having 
coverage of bushfires in the waiting room is is probably not going to be helping anyone in that waiting room or equipping the person on the phone that takes the first phone call um, from someone like Peter to feel that they can kind of uh, get the information that they require, but also without feeling or making the other person feel that they need to give a blow-by-blow detail of the trauma just to access the service. And, you know, even something about being um, really overt that I'm not the best person for you to tell me this to because, you know, that's what you're going to speak to your GP about or, or something like that. So it can be really, really practical things like that as well. Fantastic. So, you know, we talked about like trauma-informed care being like just creating that right environment, right, for, for people to want to seek help. Um, and I might just turn back to, to Peter now and even to Sam, if you've got some research in that background as well that could, could inform this some question. But what are some of the barriers for emergency workers when it comes to help seeking? Um. Firstly, we're a bunch of stubborn gits, so that's a really, really good start. It's the official term, is it? The official oh, yeah, barrier? Oh, yeah. We're, look, at the end of the day, we're the helpers and we don't like admitting we need help. Um, and that's, I think, and it speaks to Sam's comment about the fact we are a res- pretty resilient bunch. Um, we kind of, you know, I, I use the term adapt, improvise and overcome. Um, it's, we just run through that sort of thing. I think um, that trauma-informed practice, um, I spent two and a half, two and a half years at the Austin Repat as an outpatient for my initial treatment. Um, and things like the things in the waiting room changed um, there. Um, it went from um, having whatever was the, you know, regular daytime shows on, they actually had just, I say, more mindful um, music and scenes on the TV and that was it. It was very much, you know, that was, a, you know, and that's a big change. Um, having having a doctor, um, my GP that I was referred to when I broke down, he's, um, he didn't ask for a blow by blow. Um, he was more like, okay, so I, he was very much, he just let me, he accepted that my trauma is real. He accepted that what was going on was real um, and just went with, okay, now I just need to refer to the right people. And he wasn't afraid to say, bear with me. Give me a week. I want to go and have a chat to a couple of psychologist colleagues or psychiatrist colleagues, whatever he needed to at the time. And coming back with the right answer. So we weren't chopping and changing and going through three or four different treatment programs. I think it's that whole nightmare. And I spoke um, on a GP training package for Black Dog about, um, I've heard of horror stories of having firefighters, emergency service workers going, well, you knew what you were signing up for, so what's the problem? That's not constructive. We know what we're signing up for. it's yeah it being positive and going okay so the you've made a positive step you've come to me saying you need some help let's get you the right help the first time and we should get with that sam i'm happy to be corrected on a clinical no, no, basis here. No, no you're totally right i mean in terms of barriers to, to seeking help i mean there's the same barriers there 
that we see for mental health in any occupational group, just in terms of the stigma around mental health. Uh-huh. There's no doubt that it's absolutely amplified amongst emergency service workers because of the culture of the organisations and the whole sort of seven foot high bulletproof sort of mentality. Um, there is also a problem, you know, there has in some organisations been a problem around culture in terms of that it's not normalised for individuals to ask for help and then for them to be able to recover and get back to work. So there is a perception that if you ask for help, then that's the end of, of your career. And, and of, you know, we and others are working with lots of agencies um, to try and change that, and, and it is changing. I, I think in terms of some of the some of the key messages, we, um, you know, this issue of providing different pathways for individuals to be able to, to seek help. Um, you know, I mentioned at the start that we we sort of, we were one of the groups who set up uh, a support service for emergency service workers across the country at the end of last year. And that was a totally anonymous way for people to ask for help. And when they asked for help, they came through and got free service, free, free care, free treatment, totally separate from their agency. One of the things we did as researchers you know, we wanted to gather a bit of information on who was using the service. So we asked a question about just which agency did people work for? And when we looked at the patterns of people using the website, when people got to that question, there was a massive dropout. And when we went and spoke to emergency service workers, they said, I know you're not asking me for my name, but just me putting answering that question makes me anxious about being identified. And so we removed that question and suddenly we're getting huge numbers now passing through that point. So I think I, I think it's easy to underestimate just how much concern there is about individuals being identified. And while and, and so I think we, you know, these pathways that allow people to get help without having to identify themselves in the agency is hugely important in terms of early help. I think the other thing that's really important is sort of changing the narrative around recovery that you know, we know that emergency services, service workers, even when they develop PTSD after years of cumulative exposure, that they have really good, they can have really good rates of recovery if they get good evidence-based treatment early. What's really frustrating is when I see an emergency service worker that put their hand up for help five, 10 years ago and has spent five or 10 years seeing people who haven't kind of got them involved in good evidence-based treatment, and then it's really, really hard for them to recover. So I think there's definitely structural, cultural, organisational barriers, but I think there's also the one thing we can do is make sure that when people ask for help, we link them in with the really good quality care early because, you know, time matters. Yeah. Yes. So so does that mean, Sam, that is when you talk about structural um, changes, it sounds like we almost need to be training managers and supervisors to be able to direct people to the right sort of help. Is that what you're talking about? Oh, of- no, a bit of that. I mean, absolutely. We've done studies that show that you, if you train managers in emergency service agencies to not to not to be lay counsellors, but just to be able to recognise when someone is struggling and have a good conversation with them, that makes a big difference. We see rates of psychological injury claims dropping by 15% when you get managers doing that training. But I think the other thing that's important when we speak to GPs and other people working out in the, in the sort of health provision space is, you know, when 
you see an emergency service worker with possible symptoms of PTSD, you know, that that's tricky to treat, but there are experts services out there who can provide that treatment. And, and so, you know, to be honest, if you've got an emergency service worker with possible PTSD, you might get lucky kind of sending them to the usual local service, but there's a chance, there's a reasonable chance that you won't. And I think we now have pathways to get people across the country being able to get linked in with really high quality services locally. And, and I think we have to change that culture about that, that actually, you know, this is a specialist problem that needs specialist help. I think, can I add something onto that, Carol? Cause it was something that I, um, when I went up to the walk off the wall within at Mildura um, a couple of weeks ago, it's, it's very interesting. And I note what Sam says that, you know, from, uh, especially from a firefighting point of view, the top end of the the top end of management is very much aware of the prevalence, the issue, the need to do something about it. I think, you know, and this is a personal opinion, but I think somewhere in the middle, we get a little bit lost on the on the message. It gets diluted, um, and then so the conversation I had with someone was, can we then so if we try and work from say both ways so you work from right at the top and then you actually educate the new people coming into the system and give them the tools and the capabilities within themselves then you're slowly going to create a cultural change that becomes the other you know so you're actually working from both ways and hopefully somewhere in the middle it all meets and it actually works and and carol can i add something to that really good point from peter both adding to it but also answering sort of a couple of the live questions which i think sort of get to the heart of that that similar thing that yeah there's a whole lot of stuff we have to do to make sure that people when they get symptoms get linked up with proper good quality expert care then there's another whole discussion around what can you do with people who are feeling overwhelmed, who are aware they're being exposed to a lot of traumatic incidents, who are not yet unwell, you know, what can you do to protect them? And what can they do to protect themselves? And I, I think the take home message here is from the research is that um, just talking about mental health, just doing mental health awareness, just having posters up, that does very little. What really makes a difference is teaching people practical skills. Uh, and so what increasingly we're trying to do with emergency service workers is to actually teach them practical skills about how to handle the stuff that they're exposed to. Now, most of that is about just um, enhancing their usual coping mechanisms and the usual supports they have around them. And, and um, But additionally to that, the types of, you know, we, we've done a couple of studies where if you teach emergency service workers some basic mindfulness skills, that allows them to be able to gain some control over the ruminations when they start happening and to settle them down before it develops into depression or PTSD. A number of the emergency service agencies in America now have yoga programs as part of their ongoing training, but it's yoga that's tweaked to be appropriate to emergency service workers 
the firefighters often do it with their breathing apparatus on because it teaches them all about controlling their breathing when they're aroused. And it has that real focus on, on the mindfulness skills. And we're just about to start testing some of that in emergency service workers here in Australia. So I, I think there are those practical skills that people can, can learn. Um, if people, um, there's a couple of free apps or online programs that we can put in the links that, that people can use if, if they want to be looking at that. Um, the only other thing I'd notice, I've, I've been trying to answer some of the questions, typing them. I don't know if everyone can see that one. I think this whole issue about how do you how do you improve somebody's resilience without getting in the way of their usual coping is, is a sort of the big elephant in the room. Um, there was there was a really famous study where they got a group of people who'd come into hospital after nasty accidents. So they weren't emergency service workers, but they did what used to be thought of as being the right thing, you know, debriefing, give them information about PTSD, that increased the risk of PTSD amongst them. And that was because it was getting in the way of their usual coping. Mm. So, and that's been shown repeatedly. So I think it's all about teaching people the skills, putting the support around them, enhancing their usual coping. I think I was going to say, I think that's a, a really critical point. I remember um, earlier on in my career, I moved to Melbourne not long after the 2009 bushfires and the APS held a briefing for psychologists. So I eagerly, uh, this was before I worked in trauma, kind of went off to be like, what do I need to do to help? You know, I, you know, I'm on call, I'm, I'm ready to help. And then the whole, um, and Richard Bryant was one of the panellists, but the whole Paddle was basically saying, don't go, don't, <laughs> don't go and interfere. Um, uh, you know, we'll manage this within the community. Let's not kind of run in and give them our top tier trauma focused CBT uh, for people who haven't developed PTSD. And that's, I think um, that message is becoming a lot more recognized, that shift away from um, you know, one size fits all psychological debriefing, but it it still comes up a surprising amount uh, that um, that it's still pretty common practice. So I think that's something for us as a field to keep educating people about. Yeah. So um, one of the things we would really want to promote tonight is some of the resources. So you know. Sam, you talked about pathways. There's some really great pathways available. Some of the pathways de-identifies that individual, right? So um, both Phoenix and Black Dog Institute at the moment are uh, providing some really great services um, to emergency service uh, workers. And so I think um, there has been some confusion between what Phoenix provides and what Black Dog Institute provides. Um, and if you were to sum it up broadly, Alex, how would we distinguish between the two services? We've got Phoenix Australia with a lot of, um, lot of support and resources, and there's also Black Dog Institute as well. So we might actually get you to maybe give us a broad sense of how they're different and talk a little bit about Phoenix, and then I might turn to Sam, who can talk a little bit about the Black Dog Institute. Yeah, um, sure. So I think... Um... You know, obviously there are more specific details, but at a broader level, what uh, we're offering through Phoenix at the moment is training, well, a key part of it is training for the emergency service workers themselves. So uh, not, a, not a self-help course, uh, not an intervention, 
but uh, building the capabilities um, or the confidence of emergency service workers to be interacting with trauma-impacted communities, um, as well as no doubt their trauma-impacted colleagues. So the I guess the couple of approaches that we're taking in that training is one is psychological first aid, and that's targeted specifically at supervisors and managers. So that's going back to some of those things that have been raised earlier about um, how to have these you know, how to have a supportive conversation, not become a counsellor, but how to have those interactions with colleagues who have been impacted. And then the other training that we're offering is trauma-informed care, um, which is for kind of anyone within the emergency services to help them feel kind of equip them or feel more confident to work with community impacted people um, as well as their colleagues. And I think a critical part of that is some of that Um, it does both of those courses do include some of the skills that are probably helpful themselves for the emergency service worker uh, doing the course Uh, but it is and there is a a key self-care component at the end where we ask people to bring together you know what have you done in this course that could be helpful yourselves or what are the resources and strengths that you're already calling upon but I think the key difference is the idea that it's uh, kind of capability building for the emergency service workers in dealing with other trauma impacted people. But I'll throw to Sam and he can tell me if that fits with his understanding of a key difference. Yep. No, I think that's a, that's a good point. And I did, um, Alex, I, I, I put a link to the Phoenix Australia website in one of my responses oh, to one of the <laughs> questions there um, because, because your website has lots of really lovely um videos and pamphlets that that people can give to to patients or Mm. friends or relatives when who are exposed to trauma i I think what black dog is doing at the moment and where it sits around that stuff with phoenix is, is sort of you know we talked about that journey that an individual can go on from feeling overwhelmed and aware of what they're being exposed to which is a sort of and you know the training that you're providing to try and help with that if you've got individuals that are further along that spectrum who now have symptoms who seem to be at a level that they might need some sort of clinical help. Um, we've got the, the bushfire support service. And, and so as outlined on, on this slide, that's a, a website that the individual emergency service workers or volunteers or their family can go to. And, and at that website, there's, there's information but there's also at the core of it is the ability for them to be able to do an online mental health assessment, totally anonymous, as we spoke about before. They then get a report which they can print out, show to their family, take to their GP as a conversation starter. If they're not willing to or not ready to speak to anyone at the moment, they also get provided to links to some of the, um, the free online treatment programs. If they are wanting to speak to somebody, they also get access to both the Black Dog Institute Clinic and Richard Bryant's PTSD service. And and so we will provide assessments and treatments for anybody coming through that website. So essentially where we are now is it means that any emergency service worker or volunteer around Australia can get access to free treatment for depression, anxiety, or PTSD via this program. The treatment is all done via 
video conferencing as we're doing now. So there's no geographical restrictions. And if, if they have PTSD symptoms, they'll be treated by one of the best clinics in Australia run by Richard Bryant, where you can be guaranteed they're getting the, the, the best evidence-based care. If they've got depression or anxiety, they'll come through our mood disorders clinic at, at the Black Dog Institute. So um, I, I think it's a resource that we're really trying to promote and get out there because it, it gets around a number of those barriers that we've spoken to um, this evening. And of course, for GPs or other health professionals who are on the line, they can refer directly into this service as well. Um, they can just give us a call and, and, and we'll be able to arrange to see the patient. So it's really a single service that lies at the end of a number of different pathways. Patients can go there directly via the website or GPs can give us a call or an email. And I assume we're going to put the links on at some point, aren't we? I think I think if um, Katie in the background can pop the links up there, they'd be great on the chat box. And I think that answers Chris's um, question, which is the referral pathway. We can self-refer, but GPs can also refer through there. Yeah, you can self-refer, and and um, you don't. We don't need a mental health care plan because it, it's not going through the Medicare system. It's got its own individual funding stream. So I think even that is really helpful for some individuals because they can, of course, we will involve where we get, uh, where we can, we'll be involving the GPs in the ongoing management. But I think it's just one barrier that we don't have to go through and there's no gap payment. Yes. Not often you hear a psychiatrist saying that. And I think um, I... Uh, presented a nice, I tried to make a kind of a simple distinction, but I will now come back in and complicate it just a little bit, Carol, if I can. Uh, so um, I focused on kind of the training that we're offering to the emergency service workers. And I think it's a really great service and resource that the Black Dog Institute is, is running, which is amazing. And we're certainly spreading the word about that as well. But there are a couple of other things worth mentioning that are more targeted at the health professionals supporting emergency service workers that I'll kind of adding at the end. And that is uh, we have a, a short kind of an abridged version of trauma-informed care for GP practice staff and community health staff. So anyone working in those settings uh, from a GP through to the medical receptionist practice manager with the idea that to be truly trauma-informed is at an organisational level rather than just at an individual. So that's kind of a 90-minute online course that uh, people can access. And then the other uh, resource uh, for professionals working um, with trauma-impacted people uh, is the Disaster Mental Health Hub. Uh, so that's currently targeted at yeah, the helpers of people who've been impacted by trauma. And I think at the end of, uh, what are we now, March, at the end of April, uh, there will be a new range of resources on there specifically targeted at emergency services um, kind of working in the disaster space. So they're my slight complications. I'll throw back no, to Sam. It's, it's, a, it's a good point, Alex. I think the first part of our answer was all about the individual emergency service workers. Mm. And I think, you know, that's clear in terms of where on the spectrum the the, the Phoenix training sits as compared to the, the assessment treatment service we're offering. In terms of the, the training for GPs and other health professionals, yes, and, and, and that mental health hub is great. Carol, if you just go on to the other slide. Um, 
there is also, if GPs are looking for, or, or other health professionals are looking for training around how to assess, diagnose PTSD and other traumatic stress complaints from uh, their patients and, and the different referral pathways, then our GP education team are, are rolling out that training as well. And I think, am I correct, Alex, that we've tried to sort of make sure that we've got different regions that we're covering so that in reality, the, the take home message is there's really great training that's now out there for GPs and health professionals that's covered by these, um, you know, the increased funding that's followed after the bushfires. So if they contact either one of us, we will make sure they get linked in with the mm. local training in their area. Yeah, and the service, the trainings would be complementary. So uh, the Black Dogs ones is, is much more specific uh, to the treatment of PTSD and the referral pathways. And if we think of trauma-informed care as that kind of wraparound approach. Uh, so, you know, if you were really into training and a bit of a training junkie, then uh, you'd get something from both of those, I, I'd sure, I'm sure. And yeah, we will uh, make sure we're trying to direct people to what we think might be the appropriate one. Thank you both for covering um, these two organisations and the resources that are available comprehensively because I think it, there has been quite a bit of confusion. Have and we helped there... Carol or Peter? The message I got was there's a lot of resource and support out there and we want people using them and we want the right audience using the right resources as well. So um, it's fantastic. And Peter, we will be closing down this podcast at this stage. And I wanted to give the last word to Peter in terms of, you know, in your experience, um, being an emergency worker and having gone through this incredible journey of experiencing a mental health challenge and then coming out of it and, um, you know, having had some really great experience as well in terms of health providers, what is one tip to all the practitioners listening tonight, you know, all, all the people working in healthcare, um, for us to take away in terms of working with this population that can be really helpful. Um, so, you know, maybe one, one small tip that could really enhance uh, our practice a little bit. <laughs> oh, too much to ask. Question on question without notice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, I think the best thing is that, and I found the most comforting thing from my GP was he didn't claim to know everything. What he was determined to do was to turn around and say, I will find the right answer for you. So, and it didn't matter whether he needed to speak to a psychiatrist or a psychologist or whoever, that was, that was the most comforting thing that he could do for me. Um, it was because I felt comfortable because I, got, I could go in with any question and he was my starting point. And I think if every practitioner could come up, go away and give that same confidence to every person that sits in front of them, I think, I think that would probably be the best bit. Thank you. Really helpful there. Um, so thank you tonight to all our panel members um, and so much information here. We've got some thank yous as well in the Q&A and chat boxes. Um, just a gentle reminder as we are finishing off tonight's podcast to please also visit um, the Black Dog Institute for a number of resources that are there. So do visit our website and look out for our next podcast. 
which is going to look at um, healthcare providers like doctors and GPs and their struggles with mental health and um, demystifying some of the fears around that, you know, the threats to their profession if they were to disclose that they are having mental health difficulties, a really big one for us um, in the next podcast. Um, but please do follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. And also a quick reminder that we have several online tools. The Essential Network are for health providers um, and it doesn't require Medicare or anything like that. It's just a support system that's there um, for you to get that that uh, mental health support that you need as a health provider. We also have Mind Compass and the Black Dog Institute online clinic. And that's it. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us and for being really patient through our technical hitches tonight. It's just been a pleasure. Big thank you to Peter for sharing his story. Alex from Phoenix, Australia, and Professor Sam Harvey, the very cool Professor Sam Harvey, for joining us tonight. Uh, thank you very much. And that is the end of the podcast. We'll see you later. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.